I just got back from a ride. I'm standing in my garage, staring at my bikes, and the whole time I was out on the road, I was thinking, what is it on this bike or any of my other bikes that just doesn't live up to my expectations? What is it that I could make better? That's the same thing my guest on this, the first ever Build Cycle podcast, was thinking in the midst of a 100-mile mountain bike ride. Mark Basilier is the founder of Linder A, a small component brand that's come up with a number of better mousetraps for riders looking to tweak their mountain bikes for better performance or just better functionality. We talk about how he went from writing in-depth reviews of others' products to designing his own, how he got them manufactured and brought to market, and some of the things anyone thinking of making small parts needs to consider before going to production. Let's get rolling. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Mark, I've first met you via email, really, because you had your own website called Bike Fix, and I think at the time you were just sort of kind of over having to keep it updated and manage a website, but you still really like to write about bikes, mainly reviewing products, and you reached out to me asking if you could write for Bike Rumor. I dragged my feet for a long time until you threatened to offer somebody else your writing and finally got you on board. But uh, tell me a little bit, how did you get to start your own website and what were you doing before that? Um, you know, website, the Bike Fix was, was born out of uh, a number of conversations I had with a, uh, a fellow rider. Um, and we were, uh, I'd say we were looking for something different um, than was available in a lot of the, uh, the cycling press at the time um more in-depth reviews um based on on longer days um and that's that's something that you know cycling has a lot of niches and and we felt like we weren't getting the insight we needed to make good gear purchases and and my partner at the time uh partner in the project charlie and i were we're looking for fairly specific in-depth information and, you know, in print, certainly there, there wasn't the room for, for, uh, the sort of depth that we were looking for and the details we were looking for. And, and bike fix was kind of a, a fun project to, to try and provide that information to, to folks who were, had similar preferences and, and ideas. Um, it was never meant to be a commercial, project um like a lot of blogs were early on it was a reflection of our preferences and uh you know i found a a small audience and uh like you like you say the mechanics the day-to-day running of the site um weren't really my focus my personal focus and we 
certainly didn't have enough content to draw a lot of traffic. Were you uh, tracking so. traffic? Like how many visitors we were. you had? We were, and to be honest, I don't remember um, how many unique visits or uh, or anything like that. I'm sure I could dig through and pull it up, but it wasn't it wasn't like advertising was was a big uh, revenue generator. Uh, it was more just just staying involved um, in the industry in, in a way, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a fun project, but it wasn't something that was self-sustaining by any means. And I should know this, but what year was that that you contacted us, and what year did you start writing for Bike Rumor? Oh gosh, it's been a while now. It has. It's really. It's been a while. Um, I would say. It's been seven or eight years now. Okay. And then just personal curiosity, the ads, were you just running like Google ads or were you guys selling direct on that? There were, no, there were a couple of affiliate programs. Um, this was, I don't know if you remember Steep and Cheap, uh, <laughs> but that was definitely the the income generator for us because they were, they were paying a, probably an unwisely high bounty for new customers so huh. anybody who uh placed their first issue or first order i'm sorry through uh Steve and Chief, i think i think we got like five bucks wow. which is huge that's insane numbers right now and obviously they couldn't keep that up um yeah there's some affiliates we use that have actually uh, knocked back how much they're paying just because i guess they couldn't afford the original rates they offered so well, and it's it's one of those things where you can't, you know, your cost to acquire a customer can't be that high. Right. That that's just no business can really support that unless they're selling fairly high margin or, or big dollar items. So that didn't last for sure. The um, well, real quick, I got more questions about bike fix, but before that, well, why you were doing that? You had a full time job, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I uh, at the time I was working for the Department of Energy, um, doing mechanical design and um, project management. Ultimately, probably at the time more 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 mechanical and engineering design. Um, we there's a, a fairly large DOE lab here, um, which is in, where you're in where, Albuquerque. Where I'm, I'm in Albuquerque. Yep. So, ended up here. About 12 years ago, and uh, quickly landed a job there, and, um, and so I was doing that full time and uh, writing for Bike Rumor on the side. And you were—you said you're project manager, right? Were you? What's your educational background? So that's yeah. By the time I finished at at the lab, um, I was I was a project manager and, and in fact a uh, process development sort of specialist, I guess, um, an engineering program project lead was my title. But I started out going way back. Um, actually, in high school, I had a good vocational program where I ended up doing a lot of board drafting, um, which is, it was at the tail end of actually using a pencil and, and a, a drafting board. And we, we did a little bit of CAD back then in the uh, the early to mid 90s 
and came out of that um, with some basic skills, which uh, got me my first design job. Um, and I was doing that through high school for a valves, valves company. When it came time to choose a major, you know, as, as a lot of 18-year-olds do, I was looking for something fun and, and, and interesting and against my better judgment, uh, pursued a degree in uh, experiential education and uh, adventure-based program management in Vermont, which well, it's, if you think about a Knowles program uh, or, or any of those kind of experiential educational programs, be it a backcountry trip um, with an outdoor leadership program or ropes courses, uh, team building with, with corporate groups and, and kids, that's the sort of thing we focused on, the, uh, the execution and management of those, those programs. And it was a great time. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it was after three years, had more or less finished my major requirements and realized that I, I honestly, it wasn't where my passion lie. Um, so when went to the UK for my final semester and um, studied design in Nottingham, England. But came back um, with that, that project man or the adventure-based program management degree and uh, ended up interning and, and subsequently becoming the executive director of Kingdom Trails, which is uh, a trail network in northeastern Vermont. It's, it's pretty well, well known in the northeast and it was the uh, I guess it was a year ago that bike held their their Bible of bike test up there. So it's it's you know it's it's known throughout the Northeast. Lots of natural flowing single track um, and all on private land. So that was a good a good education. What um, were you doing there specifically? Um, so it was a small organization. As as the director, I was doing a lot of grant writing, um, some trail maintenance, uh, a little bit of trail building, but partnering with, with EMBA to host, you know, one of the early EMBA epics up there. Um, we, we were writing grants to the state and to, uh, to companies like Power Bar actually supported us early on. And were you, were you into cycling? Is that why you chose that one or was it just a good business yeah. opportunity? Okay. No, it was great. I was, I was into mountain biking. I've been riding since the late eighties, um, which doesn't feel like that long ago. Um, but, uh, <laughs> until but, you say it out loud <laughs> until, yeah, you do the math. Um, so I've been mountain biking since, you know, my early teens, since, since the late eighties and, uh, fell into this great trail network, you know, hundred miles of single track in Northeastern Vermont and ended up working with them for about a year until it was time to, to go back to school and, and pursue design, which I went back to the UK for. Um, and spent a couple of years over there um, studying product design, which is, or design for use, which is, you know, if you think of anything, you know, the Mac is, is the obvious um, example that a lot of people toss out, but everything from toasters to chairs are designed, um, whether or not they are manufacturable and, and meet their users and, and manufacturers' needs, it's, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. And that's something that had fascinated me for a very long time. Um, so I went for graduate school, went to Nottingham Trent University, 
believe is no longer has changed names since um, studied design for use and uh, got my design background there um, so between that and my program management I ultimately ended up working with the DOE um, doing design and, and program management work there what did you decade. design for them for the DOE we I was in a, a department that focused on energetics so small explosions um, <laughs> so you got to design small explosions I, I learned to keep my hands in my pockets whenever I was on the uh, shop floor of the factory <laughs> floor. You know, static electricity is not your friend. And, uh, but, you know, in all seriousness, it was, if you think of an airbag initiator, a lot of devices sort of in that scale, um, okay. you know, using gases to, to, to perform action. Hmm. And dealing with suppliers, working with suppliers all over the country, uh, to deliver product to a very, very high standard, um, extremely high reliability standards, extremely high standards for documentation. Uh, working with them to deliver those to our customer, um, you know, within within the government, and that was just a, a huge ongoing education. It's fantastic um, as far as learning how how things get built. You know, having as a as a young designer having discussions with with experienced manufacturers and machinists who had no problem calling a dumbass for, for specifying unnecessarily tight tolerances or parts that couldn't be built economically if at all huh. and uh, and yeah that was good times I mean it's a very big organization we had um, I want to say the site where I was had 11,000 employees so there's a lot of overhead associated with that. Um, and I imagine a lot yeah, of bureaucracy too. Oh, absolutely. The budgeting process, the, the, you know, it, it teaches you to work within a, a certain environment that any large organization has. What was the coolest project that you personally worked on there? What was the coolest thing you got to design? Oh, I don't know if I can talk about them really. There, there's, <laughs> there were a lot of really clever people, and despite you know the the government's um, reputation as being high budget all the time, there were a lot of really clever ways to get answers on a on a shoestring you know, perform experiments and, and use off the shelf materials to, to make things economically. And, and that's, that's what I'm most proud of for a lot of the test setups and the experiments done in the back, um, where we figured out how to do things for, you know, relatively small money. And that's, you know, using the McMaster car catalog, which for those who don't know is, is about a five inch thick, eight by 10 catalog of anything you would need for a factory. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, there's a lot of really bright people there. Cool. And so we're going to fast forward slightly. You were doing that. You had your website, you started writing for bike rumor and then to my own discredit, uh, you switched over to writing for single track UK 
for a little while because I was too slow to pay. So let let that be a lesson to everybody. Pay your uh, freelancers and employees on time, and they will stay with you longer. But uh, so you wrote for Chips and those guys at Single Track for a while, and then uh, sort of, if I remember right, you kind of phased yourself out of that so that you could focus on your startup, which is Linderettes. And I remember when you first pitched that to us or mentioned it, it was socks. You were going to do really good riding socks, and I don't think you've ever actually yeah. made socks, have you? I have, I have a bucket of socks here. Some of some of which are mine. Some of which, a lot of which are other people's. Yes, yeah, we. Uh, I knew after about a decade at, with the DOE that it was time to do something different. And uh, and to my my then girlfriend now wife's credit, she was extremely supportive of of my finding something that I was excited to do. And, you know, I, I really, I felt like there was, there were some opportunities in the bike market. Um, I wanted to do something domestically sourced at a reasonable price that was, it was good. And, and bike rumor readers may recall, and, and I don't really encourage them to go back, but there were a <laughs> lot of sock reviews um, under my byline. And I, they just, there weren't that many great ones. Um, there are a lot of very good socks, but there are also a lot of pretty bad ones that continue to sell beyond my belief. Uh, what is it? What is it so, about a sock that you wanted that wasn't available? I want never to think about my socks. So so one of the things, one of my, my kind of guiding principles as a, as a designer has been that if you have a product, you shouldn't think about it. I want it to disappear into the background. And, you know, maybe it's just my sensitive feet or some other pathology, but there's always a seam or some bunching or material isn't, isn't wicking properly. Um, there are a lot of just minor annoyances with socks and, uh, I went so far as to, to actually go to a, a week-long sock school in North Carolina um, to, to learn the ins and outs of sock design and, and how to achieve my goals uh, and make some industry contacts. And, and had several rounds of prototypes made and ultimately got distracted. Um, we did a couple of, or we being, the Royal, we um, did some, some t-shirts, some Rocks Belong t-shirts at Interbike a few years ago. I want to say 2014. I remember. Um, and those ended up selling really well. So we had an advertisement, but no real product line. And around the same time, I I was in talks with, uh, with Wolf Tooth Components. Um, they had some extremely popular cassette range extenders where they were taking 10 speed Shimano drive trains and SRAM for that matter um, from 11 to 36 to 11 to 42. And let me uh, just, cause yeah. there's going to be some non-cyclists listening to this. So Wolf Tooth Components yeah, is a yeah. brand that makes kind of accessory parts to put onto existing drive trains and bikes. And a, a cassette is the cluster of gears at the back. And what's becoming more and more popular are these wide range cassettes where you have 
a much broader range of gearing so you can go from a tiny gear at the bottom to go fast to a huge gear at the top to go slow but really easy at the climbs and so these extenders <clears throat> and aftermarket kits that wolf tooth and others are making simply swap out some of the gears at the top end of that to go from big to bigger kind of giving you more range without having to buy a whole new drivetrain and so and what was the first part that you helped design for them so so part of what what i saw with the the range extenders and and the idea of reducing the front chain ring so so you have range comes from two places the, the the chain rings which are attached to the pedals and the cassette which is attached to the rear wheel um people at the time um inspired to a large extent by uh, SRAM, uh, a major component manufacturer's release of a group um, called XX1. We're looking to simplify their drivetrains and only have one chain ring attached to the cranks and a wide range in the rear, um, the cassette. Wolftooth had some proprietary um, tooth profiles that worked very well at, at holding the chain on a, uh, a single chain ring. Um, their drop stop chain rings and as a companion piece had released some wide range cassette extenders that we just mentioned the issue with those um, was that to get the derailleur which moves the chain across that cassette to clear the larger cog um, some adjustments needed to be made that negatively impacted shifting especially in at the opposite end of the cassette in the high gears um, so there was very little chain engagement because the quick and, fix was just to max out that b screw and try and push the top pulley on the derailleur down further right exactly exactly so so that what that did was that moved the derailleur away from the cassette and also reduced the chain engagement and those two things had to combine together had the, the effect of increasing drivetrain wear, especially for people in flatter areas who spend a lot of time in their high gears because only two four teeth were, uh, were transmitting um, the rider's force, their power at any given time. And also because the chain has some lateral flex in it, it would make shifting vague at the bottom of the cassette. So what, what I came up with and licensed to Wolftooth was a uh, uh, an adapter that actually moved to the derailleur um, and was able to optimize around the extended cassette range. And that involved building a, a mental and, and subsequently a CAD model of the of the drivetrain and running optimizations that that found the spot that would that would involve the least compromise. Okay, and with so we that, did that. I've got a million questions. Before before you get further on the, the story of them making it, I just, how did you come up with that idea? Were you sitting there staring at it thinking, all right, I, something's wrong, and now i got to figure out what, and then i got to figure out how to fix it. So we have a, uh, um, here in New Mexico, as, as in a few other states, Colorado and Arizona, I know of um, because they're nearby, we have what's called the New Mexico Endurance Series, and it's a, uh, a series of not races limited to us, however many um, riders doesn't require a permit on the public lands on which they're held. But they're, they're generally 
60 to 100 mile mountain bike events. Um, and there's one out here called the San Isidro Dirty Century, which uh, is a lot of dirt roads out in the desert. And of course, you have a lot of time to think on these on these events. And I was following a young racer who who had one of these extended range uh, cassettes on his bike, and I could see when we were trucking along at 20, 25 miles per hour, he had virtually no chain engagement. His, his derailleur was backed way off the cassette. And not only did it instinctively look wrong, but the more time I sat on his wheel kind of focusing on it, the more I realized that that could be addressed. And, and I came back and, and did some experimenting and had some prototypes cut. And sure enough, um, it was possible to, to relocate the derailleur and, and optimize the derailleur's location. And where did you do that? Uh, the prototypes? Like how did, how did you find somebody to cut prototypes for you? The, I had experience with a company called Proto Labs, uh, from my time at the DOE and they, they did the first prototypes for, for Lender A, um, CNC machined out of aluminum. You know, it, it's pretty straightforward. You build a CAD model, um, and upload a model as well as a, uh, I don't think they do a print. They just, just work off the CAD model. So you can't specify tolerances uh, very easily with them, but they have an automated system and, and uh, they'll, they'll make whatever you need uh, from CNC machined aluminum, steel, plastics to actually making injection molds uh, for short run products. So you can say, I want this doodad and, uh, upload it into their system and I'll give you a price and a lead time. What was, can you tell me like, what does it cost to produce a prototype of a small part? Cause we're talking about a part that's like, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, not much bigger than a stack of 10 quarters. Right. Right. It's probably, let's see those original goat lengths were two inches by one inch by about three eighths of an inch. Um, and they had a pressed in pin prototyping on that I'd say probably about $75 each okay how many did you get made you know I'd do two or three at a time and, and iterate as quickly tweaks. as possible right what's that yeah I was oh, gonna no, say no. and then you just make some tweaks test yes, again. yeah sorry I thought you said six weeks and, and <laughs> the turnaround is usually around two weeks how many so you, you know, how many iterations you did you go through so you were happy with it. Oh gosh, I bet I could tell you. Um, Cause one of the things I learned is revision at, at the DOE is revision control is hugely important, hugely important. Um, let's see. So what, what do you mean by revision control? Like just change, only change one thing at a time or? Exactly, yeah, okay. change one thing at a time and label everything, keep the models, <laughs> You know, keep, um, whenever we do 3D printed parts, uh, which is another approach, those always, always, I, I extrude a cut. I, I make sure that the number, the revision number is built, is printed into the part. So it's indelible, it's there, and you know what, what you're testing at any given time. Um, you know, there are probably, 
dozen revisions of the original goat length before it was ready ready to go. Um, and then we've subsequently done a couple of running changes to the product in the past, I don't know, three years. Um, so to, have- to simplify manufacturing, make it lighter, that sort of thing. So you have this product, you've designed it. Did you then take that and approach Wolftooth about licensing it and making it for you? Or had you already had that conversation? No, no, I, I, I brought it to them. Um, it's a lot easier to sell someone on a product if you have something rather than a, an idea and being able to present something concrete, something physical. Um, was that, that always the plan or did you think, ah, oh, maybe I'll, I'll make these myself or in a batch? Or did you always think I'm just going to design this and go somewhere and have somebody make it for me? I was never planning on bringing a machine shop in house. Uh, the, the capital costs are for a good CNC machine are, are far too high, uh, for, for a product like that. But there are literally thousands of machine shops, um, in the U.S. And, and probably millions worldwide, who do contract work, and that's their bread and butter. Um, but so, what was the dis- why did you make the decision to let a, another cycling brand license it versus contract a machine shop to make them and sell them directly yourself? The, it was a good fit for their product. It addressed an issue that that they were hoping to solve as well, and it was turnkey. Um, so they, Wolf Tooth was a good fit. There are a number of product companies making cassette extenders. Uh, Wolf Tooth for me was a good fit because one of my goals with Linder A was to do as much in the U.S. if not in the first world, if not the U.S. Um, as possible. And and we've we've stuck with that. And Wolf Tooth do the same. You know, despite being yeah maybe competitive with to slightly higher price than a lot of their competitors. Almost everything in that catalog, the Wolf Tooth catalog is CNC machined in Minnesota, if not Minnesota, you know, elsewhere in the U S. Um, and that's something that, you know, as a, as a beneficiary of, of a first world education of, of first world labor laws and environmental laws, I felt was important. Um, I thought that if we could do things at a reasonable price um, with all the the worker benefits and the safety precautions and environmental um, protections that that entailed, I would sleep better at night. And that's something that we don't fly the flag too too hard. I know that's that's can be a little bit off putting, but it's something that. I felt was important and, uh, and, and really am working hard to maintain. Um, and we found that the price differential, especially when you take into account the time you spend uh, managing overseas suppliers, uh, really isn't that great. And uh, whatever, you know, whatever impacts to our respective bottom lines, um, it's, it feels good to us and feels like the right thing to do. So we were on the same page there. And uh, they had the manufacturing capability um, to make them cost effectively. So, and the distribution to sell them. Um, you know, for a while we co-branded the product 
but ultimately it made more sense for Linderay to to license that product and the ones that came after it to Wolf Tooth Components right. and uh, on, a, on a royalty basis. And distribution's key. I mean, it's. I think people might underestimate that if you can go from zero to 100 with distribution, the bike shops and an already existing customer base, then it's it's like pouring gas on a fire as opposed to trying to strike a fire with a flint and steel, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and as a designer, my passion does not lie in making, you know, I, I'm sorry, I love making things, but managing, um, doing supplier management and um, managing inventory, that sort of thing, really aren't what get me up every day. Right. So you bring this idea, yeah, no, I get it. There's a lot of stuff with bike rumor that, you know, I I do out of necessity and certainly not what I'd rather be doing, but you got to do it to a point. And then like, if you can outsource it, outsource it. Absolutely. So you bring this idea to Wolftooth. They obviously liked it because they did it. What was the negotiation process as far as, uh, you know, tell me what you want about financials, but like what, what makes sense from a licensing standpoint with a product like that? Well, the, the arrangement that we landed on and, and that's been the model for, for other, other agreements that I've had, um, is it, it varies, um, depending on, you know, if, if you bring, if I, as a designer, were to bring a company a product that they felt was a good fit and it was fully formed, you know, ready, turnkey, ready to go with, with, you know, a few small changes, but for the most part, you know, something they could plug in and was a good fit with their catalog. Um, all those development costs I've already borne, and that reflects my investment in the program. Um, and then typically, you know, designs can be bought outright or my preference is you know what for every unit you sell we get lender a gets x dollars or x cents um and uh we catch up every month and that's that's a low risk approach for the licensee um, and how that do you track that, that? Have, do they share the books with you or do you get a sales report from a third party I mean, we, obviously, we there's some trust involved, but right, right, and and in our in our um, contracts, we we have the right to request a third party audit, but it's not. A lot of it is, and this this may ultimately be a, you know, may at some point prove to be a problem, but um, finding the right partners, partners with whom you have a rapport and, and trust. I, I don't worry too much about that unless the numbers seem way off. Um, so it's 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 self-reported All right. on their part. And now, do you have a patent on the design? What's preventing them from, or anybody else, from just knocking off the design and running with it without paying you? On a number of our designs, we have design patents and utility patents. Um, the and those are marked as such. The patent process is long and expensive. Um, 
And for a product like the GoLink, it's not, it's not worth spending the money to hire a lawyer and the thousands of dollars and the times you'd wait, the time you'd wait. Um, we patent things that have a long um, expected life and a huge, a very big market. So there are a couple of products, Wolf Tooth and Dairy products that we've chosen to, um, that we've shared development on, that we've chosen to patent um, and that are patent pending now, if not, if they haven't already been received. Things like the eccentric upper pulley on the Wolf Cage, uh, which is another adapter, a drivetrain adapter. The way we figured out how to offset a pulley without requiring the, the user to dig into a director's uh, clutch to really get into it. Um, we have a five minute install if you if you take your time. Um, that's something that's, that's patented. The road link is patented, um, has, a, has a design patent on it um, for in process because they're, it, it, we, it's a subjective decision to be honest, I, I can't say there's a formula for what you patent and what you don't. Right. Well, you, you bring up an interesting point with the goat link and that um, depending on what you patent, that life cycle has something to do with it. And the goat link is almost one of those things in my mind that has a kind of a limited life cycle because it's probably not going to be too much longer before people aren't needing to upgrade their cassettes. I mean, it's, I'd say a couple more years and most people that are riding are going to have either completely new drivetrains or new bikes that come with a proper, you know, completely integrated uh, wide range one by drivetrain. So this, this product Absolutely. is almost like a stopgap. Right. Right. And by the time somebody else were to bring a com competing product to market, you know, in, to be honest, there are two, I've seen at least two knockoffs of the goat link one out of China, which is not a huge surprise. And then <laughs> which, uh, didn't they put your logo on it too. No, not the Chinese. Israel. Oh, they stole our 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 copy as well as the design. So all the text that I had written, the catalog copy, was used on their website, and that's on. I mean, it's just shameless. That's transparent. That's straight up shameless. And and they were shameless when I approach them about it. You know, it's, it's, they're like, well, you got some free advertising out of it. And it's like, oh, well, guys, you know, whatever. I'm not, that's not a long-term business strategy. Yeah. And How did you deal with that? Thing We've publicized it a little bit. Um, they don't have U.S. distribution. Um, and it's such a blatant knockoff that yeah, whatever. If if they make a few hundred of them or a thousand of them in Israel and and you know nearby countries, then you know they. I'm sure they sleep fine. I haven't stolen the design, but you know it's it is what it is. All right. You, you've got to pick your battles and and the things to be upset about. And it's not materially impacting me. Um, yeah, and it's 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 a little bit of of uh, it lends a little bit of credibility. Um, the same is true of 
the boostinator, which we didn't, you know, we didn't patent, but when some Bill Shook came out with a similar concept, you know, one of the, the founder of American classic, you know, he, he's a thinker. I know I love my conversations with him because he knows he's in, you know, he's physically in the idea. You can see it when you talk to him and for somebody like him to, to come out with a similar product, you know, through parallel of evolution, that feels like validation. Yeah. I was just going to say sort of validate your own idea and creativity, which is nice because yeah, Bill's come up yeah. with some good stuff over the years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's got a unique perspective, but there's no arguing that he's an extremely bright guy who thinks things through and yeah. So anyway, the knockoff, it's a problem, but it's not a major problem. So how many products have you worked with Wolftooth now? Oh gosh. So let's see here. Products that are on the market about, I guess, early this spring, April, May, um, they took over the entire Lindoray catalog at the time. Um, so we have, I think we've got nine or 10 products on the market at the moment. And at this point, are you almost just like a consulting, like a design consultant for them or an, an outside designer? Yeah, so our, our relationship has evolved. Um, and as of the first of this year, Linder A contracts were, were basically on retainer for a certain number of hours each month. Um, and that, Frees, frees me up to work on, on products that are not originated here, that, that Lindray hasn't originated, that I haven't originated, um, and gives them some flexibility to, to call in design support on, on things that they have in the back of their minds. Now, some of these products that they make, there's there's got to be some engineering, you know, like stress analysis, especially with the chain rings when you're applying these forces at different angles to them. So your area of expertise is more the design and use side is, do you have an engineering background or how do you bring in engineering talent to supplement what you do? So the three principles at Wolftooth are all mechanical engineers. Okay. Um, and that's, so those, that's where those are coming from. Um, on products like the Boosinator, we'll, we'll hire or bring in outside engineers. Um, it's there are a lot of a lot of very bright um, mountain biking or cycling mechanical engineers in the uh, in the lab system. So there are a lot of a lot of PhD engineers on the trails that I see pretty regularly, and who are happy to 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 do some analysis. Uh, for a nominal fee um, and that's that's worked out very well for us um, in the past so having that that talent pool to draw on who know who know the market who know the applications um, has been really beneficial really beneficial right on so this path that you've taken is would you have ever predicted this or it seems like the 
getting into the product side of things was not even a blip on your radar when you started out in adventure project management. You know, the design thing was always in the back of my head. Um, and it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, I think there's a, the gestation period was really, was really long. Um, and I think it was extremely valuable the, the taking products from, from print or from concept or drawing, um, to, to manufacturing and to product acceptance, a really difficult product acceptance process in the DOE was, and learning how to do that well, um, was a very big and valuable education. Um, and I mean, what, what was it? Like, I feel like, uh, we're going to backtrack for a second here, but what was sure. it that clicked inside your head? You said, you know what, I'm going to do this. Like that. I think I can make a go of it. What, gave you that confidence or what just finally made you so fed up or what was the trigger? You know, it goes back in to some, in some part to the, the, the reason that I started bike fix, uh, the Charlie and I started bike fix was we felt that needs weren't being met. And I continue to feel that way. You know, there, there are areas of, of products that I feel could be improved. And, and, and as a product reviewer, you know, both with bike rumor and, and uh, later single track, I'd be at the trade shows and and see a lot of great products. Um, there's a lot of inspiration in there, but also when you start to see patterns, there'd be opportunities as well. Right. Um, and that's, you know, maybe somebody. It's as simple as one person would do something one way and you'd do it another way. Um, part of it were, you know, being frustrated by serviceability or ergonomic, um, shortcomings. You know, that's, that's where the remote came from and, and, uh, dealing with dropper post remotes, it just, you know, you had to take, you had to rerun internal routing every time you wanted to, to replace a cable or, just the installation process was on was brutal because they'd put the cable fixing the screw that buried it inside the seat post um, and under bar remotes that you know re relied on inline cable adjusters that would sit out in front of the bike and rattle because you've got weight just hanging on a cable um, those were all all issues that I saw um, and you know, new releases would come out and I have a, I have a pretty big news feed, including, you know, bike rumor and all the other major publications where when something's released, I, I see it and every once in a while you'd be like, they still haven't fixed that. You know, <laughs> somebody should do something about that. Um, and, and so that's when you start seeing those patterns, um, it's, it's, it's fine to look at a product and say, I would have done it differently. Um, it's, it's harder, but also more rewarding to say, well, okay, this is how I would do it. And then accept everybody else saying that they would have done it differently. Right. And or then not. doing something about it and doing something about it. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, 
you know, the, the, the feedback, I, I try not to spend too much time, um, hearing, listening to the peanut gallery. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly difficult to bring a product to market, um, at a price that people are willing to pay. Right. You know, the you... raw material cost or the, you know, the machining time are, are just a small portion of, of the cost and the challenges associated with, with making a product. What are some of the other big ones that people may not be considering? Like, you know, the point of this is kind of to share stories yeah, with yeah. would-be entrepreneurs that are thinking, ah, oh, this product, I can make it. But then they get into the mix of it and they're like, oh, crap, I didn't think about this, 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 and this. Like, what were some of the big surprises for you? Um, I think surprises, forecasting demand can be hugely challenging. Um, some things that I never would have expected to become big sellers are, are, are some of my, in, in terms of quantity are, are far, are just huge, huge and continuous, you know, ongoing sellers. Um, you know, knowing how many of a product to make in, in your first production run and balancing the realities, especially as a small business, um, of, of the capital required to make, make that happen. If you want to make a thousand pieces of your idea and the product costs, you know, $10 each, well, that's $10,000 if it's self-funded. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of money. But if you're just getting started, you know, do you want to spend $10,000 on a, on buying a thousand parts or do you just buy 500 and a better computer so you can run the CAD software? You know, do you spend that on advertising or, or, um, you know, marketing related expenses? So how, how you carve up what, what money you have, especially if you're self-funded or a small, a small company, um, that's, that's really challenging. And, you know, I listened to, uh, and I, forgive me, I forget his, his name. Um, the founder of Silka spoke recently about getting flack for going to Kickstarter for a couple of recent projects. You know, people, Kickstarter is not made for, for its established companies. Um, but his point, which I can, I can, I've experienced is if you don't have that capital, if you don't have large amounts of money to throw at multiple projects simultaneously, you can't release more than a couple of new ideas a year. Um, so having, you know, deciding what has the most potential and what needs to be released now rather than next year, because if we'd waited two years on the goat link, you know, and, and focused resources on another product, like you say, it would have been, it would have been obsolete um, before it, it landed. So, so that's, you know, figuring out the, the right balance between meeting demand and, uh, preserving your, your, your budget. Um, that's challenging. And so I'm, I've been surprised, caught off guard uh, several times by how many, of X will need to keep an inventory. And I've also had boxes of other products that just kind of sit and look at me. Um, (laughs) So that's a big challenge. Um, The expected challenges 
a lot of them revolve around supplier management um, and delays and, and poor communications from suppliers. And I try to make it extremely, extremely clear when working with new suppliers that communication is critical. Um, that's, it's not uncommon and it's unfortunate that be it in the bike industry or the weapons industry uh, in the US or abroad, if you're not hearing from your suppliers, they're late. And the last thing I want to do is to promise a distributor or a customer that we will have something on February 14th and to call my supplier on, on the 10th and say, Hey, you know, where are, where are these, where's these parts? And hear, hear him or her say that, well, you know, the machine's gone down and it'll be an extra two weeks. You know, if I have a heads up, I can work around that. I can send emails to pre-order customers and say, Hey, you know, this has been delayed. I'd like to offer you a discount or <clears throat> keep you in the loop, give you the chance to cancel. You know, I want to be upfront, but if I don't know, I can't do that. And that's been a really hard message to get through. It's not that I don't care if a supplier is late. I care if they hide the week that something's due. Um, that causes problems for everybody and that'll get somebody voted off the island very quickly. <laughs> Do you try to keep a, a rotation of suppliers for any particular part then to kind of reduce that risk or you typically find one good one and stick with them until there's a problem? Um, when you're new, it's hard to, because you only have X number of dollars to work with. Um, it's hard to diversify your supply chain. So you're having multiple manufacturers doing the same thing in, in parallel. Um, with once somebody has a track record of, of delivering you know, close to the mark and you've had that conversation and they're receptive to the conversation about communication, that's, you know, that's when you, you want to keep someone around. Um, but there are definitely suppliers that I and, and companies I've worked with have stopped working with because, you know, they may have had a good price, they may be good folks, but if you go to ground, like, if you stop answering emails, in that last week or 10 days before a product is due. I can't, I can't deal with that. I have a, you know, we all have other things to do than, than chase somebody who's supposed to be doing their job. And it's, it's seriously, it's a five minute email. Yeah. Have you Send found that there are things on your end that have reduced problems on the manufacturing side or things that you've, found that some manufacturers do that reduce these problems? Being clear with expectations is, is the main one. Um, creating good drawings is an undervalued skill. Um, you can have the best design in the world, but if you don't understand how tolerances stack up, um, 
every every mechanical part has some variance in it um, and sometimes they're extremely small you know modern CNC machines are, are very consistent um, mo injection molding machines you know once a mold is built the parts are extremely consistent but understanding especially when you have several parts going together how those tolerances affect one another um, and the parts they interact with and knowing what parts what dimensions what measurements are important and identifying them um, so that the supplier can do their in-house uh, inspections is hugely important like if you over specify call out tolerances that are too tight you won't be able to build a part for a, a price that somebody will pay you'll price yourself out of the game um, I'm just because I have a remote sitting on my desk in front of me, I'm looking at the lever shape. And if you think about the outline of a shift lever or that, that can vary 10 thousandths of an inch, 25 thousandths of an inch without anybody knowing or caring. It's, it's not a critical dimension. That said, you know, the, the cable clamping feature, we have a, a screw that actually clamps, um, the cable that actuates the, the C post, which this lever uh, works with, is extremely critical and it requires very low torque. Um, so calling that out and describing that precisely and inspecting those when they come in to make sure that they're within the expected range. Um, those identifying the critical dimensions and inspecting them and, and letting, know, letting suppliers know that you'll be inspecting. You know, these are the things that I will be inspecting. The others, you know, do your best effort, but it's a rough shape. If it looks okay, you know, nobody's going to care if it's a tenth of a millimeter oversized or undersized. Right on. Well, Mark, I appreciate your time, and this is a great talk. Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate it, and you have a uh, a good afternoon. Yeah, you too. Thanks for tuning in to the very first episode of the Build Cycle Podcast. Two of the things that stood out for me in this conversation were the path that Mark took to go from concept to a product that's for sale. He leveraged his design expertise to get it into the marketplace without having to worry about the manufacturing process himself. The other thing was the difference between design for use and design for manufacturing. There's a big difference between making something that's beautiful and easy to use and actually being able to have it produced. And we'll explore that topic more in a future episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Build Cycle podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and join our email list for more information, tips, and tactics. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Build Cycle. For show notes, links to some of the things we talked about, and more, head to this podcast's blog post on thebuildcycle.com. Until next time, enjoy the ride.